Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Pius Akumbu. Professor Pius Akumbu is an associate professor of linguistics at the University of Bamenda, Cameroon, and an Alexander von Humboldt Fellow at the University of Hamburg since January 2019. He received his PhD in linguistics from the University of Yaoundé 1 in Cameroon. His research focuses on the documentation and description of Grassfield's Bantu languages of Cameroon, including his mother tongue, Babanki. Additionally, Pius researches multilingualism in Cameroon as well as language planning and policy in Africa. He is an ELDP grant recipient and a depositor at the Endangered Languages Archive. He is also a member of the PalmCom project. So this episode with Pius was so interesting. I really enjoyed speaking to him. He had so much to say about how we can decolonize not only field linguistics, but also academia. And he gave several examples of different models that have been implemented, um, including Jeff Good's model of of language documentation and empowering local scholars. Jeff Good is someone we had on Field Notes in episode 13. And today's episode is going to be the season finale for season two. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported the podcast, either by listening or by rating us or by sending an email to share your story or ask a question. And if you're interested in learning how you can support Field Notes, there is a page on the Field Notes website, fieldnotespod.com. And under the where to support, you can see a list of ways to support Field Notes. And I'll link that in the show notes. And the last thing I'd like to say in this intro of the season finale is thank you so much, not only to Pius for giving his time so generously to this podcast, but also to all of the Field Notes guests who came on this season and last season. Without your stories and without you sharing your experiences, there wouldn't be a podcast. So I'm very grateful to everyone who has come on the podcast and also supported in other ways. Thank you, Pius, so much for making time to come on to Field Notes. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Marty. It's my pleasure, and I really look forward to this discussion with you. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. So to start, can you share with our listeners how you first got into linguistics? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. It was a coincidence. I can't say it was planned in any way. I, I didn't know anything about linguistics until the eve of my undergraduate studies. And a, a friend just encouraged me and I decided to try. Yeah. Before I started, I had no idea what I would learn. You know, like in most parts of the, of the world, linguistics is not well known. As people confuse it with learning to speak several languages. 
And I, I should also say that the very first department of linguistics in Cameroon was quite new at the University of Yaoundé 1. The undergraduate program started only in 1993, and then I got there in 1994. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I actually went in blindly, but, but was fortunate to have very good professors, like um, Gesimo Mutaka, and uh, unfortunately the late Pius Tamanji, who helped to raise my curiosity and interest in the courses I took. In the end, I really liked what I was doing, and uh, I took interest in the courses. And... Um, so I was really motivated to continue, and I moved on to graduate level. And at this point, I gained further exposure, especially through SIL linguists in Cameroon. Yeah, and I, yeah, I remember the encouragement and support of people like Ginger Boy, Robert Hettinger, Keith and Mary Bivon, Steve Anderson, to whom I'm still, I mean, I'll always be grateful to these people for their input. And I really got further motivated when Robert Hedinger offered to sponsor my PhD field trips to the east of Cameroon, to the east region of Cameroon. Without his financial support, I, I wouldn't have come, continued on that path because I, I couldn't find funding from any other source. So I continued with the support of several linguists and eventually completed my PhD in Cameroon. And I must say that uh, Gesimo Mutaka, whom I mentioned before, did not just encourage and support me, uh, even financially, but he was he was a model, a wonderful mentor with so much integrity, and I wanted to become a linguist like him. Yeah, so that's uh, how I I think it all started for me. Jeff Good during his episode he mentioned something about how one of the biggest hurdles that early career researchers face is just scraping together that first amount of money to do the first field trip, the first, you know, 5,000 pounds or dollars just to get like those first trips out of the way, then you can do more. But yeah, I, I think this is what this is what Robert Herringer helped me to do uh, at that at that point. And I mean, without it, I, I would have, you know, done something else <laughs> in life. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's such a nice story. That's so amazing. So at that time, for your f first field trips in Eastern Cameroon, did you start immediately working with Babanki, or did you do something else first? No, actually, I only after my PhD did I think of going back to work on my native Babanki, on my mother tongue. Yeah, that was the right thing for me to do. I <laughs> I think of what uh, Larry Hyman always tells me. <laughs> he, he says, I walk around with an infinite corpus of Babanki, you know, which I, which, <laughs> which I could better exploit. You know? So when I, yeah, so that's how I returned to work on Babanki. So you did, so what did you do during your PhD in Cameroon? What aspect of language did you study? Yeah, so I wrote a, uh, uh, Grammar of uh, Njem. Njem is a, a narrow Bantu language of uh, spoken in the eastern region of Cameroon. This is uh, compared to Babanki, which is a grass fields language. So this was a complete new and interesting experience for me. My focus was really on describing the tone system of Njem. And then after you graduated from your PhD, you went back to your mother tongue, Babanki. Exactly, exactly. Can you talk more about your experience as an insider researcher 
working on your mother tongue? What was that experience like? And and how did you think of that? Like, how did you decide this is what I want to do? Yeah, going back to language documentation, which is like one of the major things I've had to go do back in the field uh, in, in Babanki, in the Babanki speaking area. Uh, when I was introduced to language documentation, I saw, you know, the the need to contribute to the, the documentation, the preservation, the revitalization of my mother tongue. It, this became very obvious to me. This was the right thing I should do. And because working on Babanki has become really enjoyable and fulfilling for me because I am not just contributing to safeguarding part of the world's cultural diversity, but also working with people I know, you know, my own people who know me and who appreciate uh, what I'm doing. And uh, when I, when I go to the field, I actually go home, you know, <laughs> I actually go home. And when working in the community, I live at home with my family and everyone is excited and willing to cooperate, you know? So you see, you can imagine an, an outsider would think and maybe worry about how they will be received and catered for, whether they would find a comfortable place to live, you know, or how the people in the area live themselves, whether they would find uh, willing collaborators, you know, whether they will even find the right food to eat. I don't have to worry about any of this. You know, I don't have to worry about any of this. I have different kinds of worries, which maybe I'll share later, you know. But one big advantage I have, you know, is like easy access to to data, especially on restricted domains, you know. And even, you know, the kind of... I, I could easily have a, a perspective that would be different from an outsider because... I have been involved not only in linguistic work, but also in community, develop community development activities in, in Babanki. And uh, many people know me, so I don't have that challenge of, you know, having the kind of data I would probably seek to have, you know. And as expected, I, I have a wider understanding of the needs and desires of Babanki people. They, they are actually my needs as well, <laughs> you know. So I, I know for sure I can give you an example. I know for sure that Babanki people don't need dictionaries. They don't need, they don't need language development. You know, instead we need uh, healthcare, we need roads, we need schools uh, and, and so on. And uh, while I do my, f my work on the language, I also try to work with corporate with the people to see what, what, uh, how we can meet some of these needs, you know, while preserving uh, our, our language promoting the use of the language and, you know, but we, we should try to meet some of our needs. And for example, based on my, my understanding of my understanding that mother tongue based multilingual education uh, is, is what can work, you know, best in highly multilingual Cameroon. You know, I, I have actually opened a bilingual school in Babanki where uh, actually, I was hoping children would begin learning first in Babanki and then eventually transit to learning in English after a few years in school. Unfortunately, the project started at a critical time because the first six classrooms were were completed in 2017. But then there is uh, the Anglophone crisis, which is exactly in that area. And so it has prevented schools from f functioning properly. 
So I, I can say with confidence that field work on my mother tongue has been so exciting and, and fulfilling, and uh, I, I really like it. Can you give us more information about the language context of Babanki? Yeah, this is this is a kind of tricky question, but you know, I I I've just mentioned uh, the issue of multilingualism, and Cameroon happens to be a, a highly multilingual country where close to three hundred national languages coexist. Excuse the term, but with colonial English and French, you know, which unfortunately are the the official languages of the country. So uh, while while Babanki coexists with with uh, several neighboring languages, it also has to deal with the influence of uh, Pidgin English and then uh, English, which which is the official language of that part of Cameroon. But I can say there are uh, two main settlements that have been identified as the villages where Babanki is spoken by approximately forty thousand people in in those two main settlements. But as we already know from uh, recent work by people like Jeff Good, uh, Federica Lupke, we, you know, and many others, the idea that people have a single mother tongue and that communities are defined linguistically and uh, ethnicity is equated to language do not fit the Babanki context, you know. Babanki people are multilingual and use languages for specific purposes, for example, to structure social relations and so on. So it's not uh, the situation in Babanki is not as extensive as what we know about the lower Fungom region from uh, from basic essentially from work by Jeff Good, uh, Pierre Paolo, Di Carlo and and many others. But we see it happening in a lesser degree in Babanki where people use all these languages the way they do. On, and unfortunately, also, Pigeon English has become even more popular and the domains where Babanki is used have reduced significantly in favor of Pigeon English. Yeah. And this makes the language to be highly endangered. And it's evident that intergenerational transfer has fallen drastically. And the ongoing, the, the ongoing Anglophone crisis has actually worsened the situation as many people, especially the youth, have fled for their lives. You know, so it, it is not even possible at this point to assess the situation, you know, yeah. And, uh, with, with this, the impact of the crisis uh, on language loss, you know, even in the entire English speaking parts of Cameroon, it's, it's a terrible situation. And I think unforeseen circumstances like, like this really justify the need for language documentation. And since it's not possible to know when a language might face uh, abrupt threats of extinction like we see now in the whole of that area. So I really hope the work we have done so far will be useful in preserving and perhaps, who knows, maybe revitalizing uh, Babanki in, in, in the future. Yeah. Has the area been affected by the COVID-19 crisis at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the Northwest region in general hasn't been affected terribly much like the rest of the country, especially the metropolitan areas of Yaoundé and Douala, you know, that have recorded the highest number of cases so far. So the, the Northwest region has also been affected, even though to a lesser degree. Uh, although we don't know so much about the COVID-19 situation there because, you know, there are several challenges. We don't know how much testing is done and so on. So, 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a really difficult time. And I mean, research is not the most pressing issue, of course, in times like these, but yeah, in times like this, yeah. Can we talk a little bit more before you mentioned that you have different worries when you're in the field as an insider, you don't have to worry about where you'll stay or what you'll eat or and you have intuitive, you know, mother tongue intuition. But you mentioned that you have other other worries when you're doing field work. Can you talk more about that? Well, be, uh, before even going to talking about challenges I face in the field, I could even begin from challenges I face in academia, you know, as a whole. And yeah, and especially with obtaining uh, funding in particular. Yeah. And in that regard, I must say that Cameroonians like myself do not have exactly the same training opportunities especially in technology and practical language documentation methods. Several factors are responsible for this. And one of them I would I could mention is the, the use of foreign languages in education, right from the basic level. You know, in, in my case, for example, when I started school at the age of six, I, I didn't know a word in English. It may sound strange, but I was in a remote part of Cameroon. I didn't know a word in English. Uh, but I was immediately taught in English and forbidden to use Babanki around the school environment. So I would be punished if I did. And this is the only way I could speak. So it, it was actually difficult. Uh, so this practice discourages uh, many and lays a weak foundation for further uh, learning and actually slows down the development of proficiency in English, which uh, one eventually needs, you know, in the long run. The second reason for this kind of challenge is that our universities barely introduce students to language documentation and hardly provide practical opportunities for things like maybe grant writing. This really reduces opportunities for obtaining uh, funding. Usually we, we cannot even fulfill that important uh, experience requirement that funders impose. So this directly reduces the, the opportunities we have compared to others in, you know, in the Western world and so on. Yeah. And so another issue that scholars like myself from, from Cameroon and probably from the rest of Africa face is that we are kind of obliged, obliged. No, maybe I should say we attempted to copy models, models from Western scholars. And yeah, and this clouds our own interests, it, it clouds our understanding, even, you know, a way of interpreting issues. For example, I could say uh, when I had uh, an ELDP grant earlier, I mostly followed the traditional practice of documenting a specific language spoken in a given geographical space, you know, and I, I didn't pay attention to the sociolinguistic reality of the Bobanki people at, at that time. I'll say those are challenges in academia, but when I have managed to overcome all those hurdles, those difficulties, and, and to win a grant, I also face challenges in the field. And the first thing I would like to mention is that each time I go to the field, I mean, several people would say this, so I have, you know, I can say it. Uh, people begin to expect that they will have, they will have money from me irrespective of maybe the kind of grant, the size of the grant I have, and so on. Since people cannot understand maybe that some grants are small, others are large, and so on. <laughs> you know, and while people are always available and and willing 
you know, to participate, paying them, you know, for the many hours they would offer is, is really always a burden. Part of the problem there also comes from the fact that um, there were other researchers who had been to the area in the past and and kind of just collected data, kind of, you know, the, the, the term mind, kind of mind data and, yeah, and, uh, and left without leaving anything tangible in the community. So even though people are willing to participate, they insist on sufficient payment. Uh, I think it is an issue that everyone faces when they get to the field nowadays, uh, whether, whether they are an insider or an outsider, you know, they have to. I, I think of other things as well, like maybe doing fieldwork in remote areas, in remote parts of the world, you know, to conduct language documentation using advanced technological tools is, is a challenge. It is a challenge of getting equipment work continuously. So, and this is because of limited electricity supply or maybe complete lack of it. Yeah, and I often have to go uh, back to the major city to charge like things like batteries or even computers, especially when uh, I plan to have uh, an extended period of, to spend an extended period of time in the field. And it, it is uh, always very difficult for Babanki people to agree with the, the idea that uh, developing and using their language is beneficial because parents wonder whether their children will be successful in school. If, if they use Babanki as a language of instruction and they wonder whether their children will eventually get jobs if, if Babanki is used because they see everyone using uh, English in like in administration in the country or using like pidgin English for business and so on. And uh, it, it, so it becomes really difficult for parents and even for children themselves to understand that English will, will uh, that the children will actually learn uh, better and faster if they begin learning in the language they master when they start school and that once the foundation is late, they can transfer the skills to also learn uh, other languages and subjects better and faster. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. What do you think would be some ways that we can make more opportunities for local scholars? So you mentioned that there needs to be more access to skill development and things like grant writing and maybe technology. And then with the education, so like if they have mother tongue education and then transition into English. Yeah, um, let me f uh, f say for, there are, there are, I think there are, models already that one can you know get inspiration from and uh, if we think of the the approach that Jeff Good and Pierre Paolo have taken in their project the PAMCAM uh, PAMCAM project the approach has been to provide training not just for Cameroonian students but also to collaborate more closely with staff at the universities in Cameroon, I, I happen to be part of that of that project. So every now and then there is some kind of training, not just for the students, but also for staff. And there are conferences. There are, you know, it's kind of on-the-job training for, for which which is actually uh, improving a lot on skills and giving opportunities, including also there have been a lot of funding opportunities for students who couldn't get funding, for example, to do fieldwork. You know, so projects like that, that uh, try to empower 
um, collaborators in Cameroon or in uh, in Africa would actually be helpful to to everyone because you know the the burden is reduced for you know if Jeff and Pierre Paolo were doing all of this by themselves you know the number of students that have completed maybe PhDs masters degrees through that project would have been far less and um the the Babanki school thing is actually a model that we understand from previous studies would work if you allow children to start studying in the language they already master before starting school which which is natural you know everywhere in the world you know if yeah and you know if if for example if a, a japanese child moves to germany they don't just start studying in german they would spend time to learn the language first and then they can begin learning you know and this is uh, when you, when you you learn in a language you already understand you deal with just one issue which is that of understanding the content you know unlike uh, the you, a child goes to school and is taught in a completely foreign language and then the child has two major tasks first to understand what they are learning and then to understand the content and this this so research has shown that you allow people to learn in a language they master and they would learn faster of course since they have a single task you know and uh, once the they already are familiar with the learning techniques in their first language they simply transfer those to the new language which we we all need english you know at in this global village there's there's no doubt about that but you know when we it's forced down on people it rather slows the process so this was the idea of because the government is reluctant to do it there there are all kinds of pressures you know that, the official languages you know should be promoted in school and this is not just the for the interest of the government but also for the interest of the even the colonial masters themselves they want their languages to continue to be promoted you know so the only way we can manage this right now is to take individual initiatives you know to because it's legal it's allowed in cameroon to use a, a local language in school as even as a, a language of instruction so this this was where I came from and uh, so I thought this would be something you know if if I say it I teach it I should try to make it available to my own people Do you think this is enough or I'm wondering like if there are other things that we can do to decolonialize linguistics Yeah kind of uh, it's kind of hard but when you consider where the funding comes from you know it immediately says some kinds of challenges that will be involved because the 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 funder has an agenda and this has to to be pushed through uh and but i think people could begin to think of doing more such as it's possible that more cameroonians for example could or more africans could be uh, given the given the opportunity to also to also have this kinds of big projects which you know maybe with a little a little additional training and so on and 
because once you have a perspective like everything is in kind of imposed on you you know you may do what you can you know but not really what you would have loved to do so i kind of think um i can't say okay they should just give people grants when the people are not prepared or they are not able to do to execute the projects but i think with a little more uh, training would help and also if if we think of it it's even when people go and implement or execute projects in those parts like in africa we should people should understand that they are working with human beings who have the kinds of some of those kinds of needs that i mentioned earlier you know and not just focus on satisfying you know our project need which is to record large chunks of data and go away with them but also to see that you know we are working with human beings who have some needs and when we see in many places although people are people are happy people are you know we are happy with with what we have with our, our environment with the the way things are going for us it's it's really nice you know but when you see people not being able to have basic education proper healthcare and and so on i think donors funders could see you know try to integrate something in in funding which would allow to to help these uh, people whose whose language whose resources you know this is what people own you know and taking it away and you know just leaving them like that you know and would not be is not really ideal and as i said involving more community members in projects can really be 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 helpful and yeah and uh, i've always thought also that like community based community based language of language documentation is you know where many people have argued that this is the best approach to follow you know so get to a community and let people uh, direct well parts of the project people should decide what should be documented and what should be done with uh, with the products of the documentation and so on so it's it's a challenging issue but if people are conscious that something needs to be done everyone might contribute ideas and we can find something together yeah yeah i think what i'm hearing is that we we should have like us the researchers and also at a larger level the funders need to have more of a holistic approach so if the community needs roads and healthcare we shouldn't be so quick to say like oh well that's not our area you know what is good for the community is also good for the language and if we say we care about the language and we care about the community then these things can go together right that's right that's right yeah can you tell us more about your main research interests in your work in babanki yeah actually i i was um, my training was really in uh descriptive linguistics particularly in in phonology so i i consider myself a phonologist yeah but also i took interest in language documentation once it became popular in africa even though it was a little bit later maybe like 10 years ago or so it had been in the west for long, far longer than that yeah also i i have interest in language of education policy languages of education policy 
since I, I think the, the the work I do should should be useful to the community of speakers of the languages I work on, basically. Can we talk about the ELDP grant that you had? So the ritual speech registers, can you share more about that? You mentioned earlier that as an insider, it's a little bit easier for you to get people to talk about restricted subjects. What was what was that project like? So I got a small, small grant, which is like 10,000 pounds. And, and I, I really appreciate that opportunity that I got through the ELDP to document aspects of Awanki ritual speech. I, I actually just scratched the surface, like the tip of the iceberg. I've had a number of other small grants from the Firebird Foundation for anthropological research and uh, uh, even the Endangered Languages Fund and Foundation for Endangered Languages. Yeah, my main aim in in the ELDP small grant was to capture the use of Babanki in in ritual ceremonies, which uh, which I I I knew or I know contain uh, various special speech forms not used in ordinary day-to-day Babanki. So I I sought to document the use of Babanki during major events that involve stages of life, ranging from birth to marriage to illness and death. But this was motivated by the fact that Babanki people no longer perform most of the rituals that were traditionally associated with these uh, with these practices. So so the traditions and customs that are embedded in in the rituals and which make the Babanki people unique are no longer transmitted to younger generations. These traditions and customs cannot be expressed nor transmitted in a, in a foreign language, such as uh, Pidgin or English. So as the language goes down, so do the, it, it takes the culture along with it. And that's how cultural diversity is lost and people are left stranded without a language of their own and without a culture to bring to the global village. Yeah, so I, I therefore captured the performance of a few rituals, given that the time frame of one year was not enough to find many natural performances. But at the same time, I used the opportunity to sensitize people and and maybe to encourage them to to continue the perf- the performance of these these rituals. You know, and this was yeah, you can imagine that in the whole of 2014, for example, I didn't uh, have the opportunity to witness a, even a single traditional uh, marriage ceremony you know in 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 the traditional sense of it and so i had to arrange for one to be staged and uh, this was helpful because as people engaged in in preparations and eventually staged the ceremony it became clear to everyone that uh, a valuable part of the babanki culture was neglected and Future generations will will not even remember. They will not even remember how the ancestors used to live, or you know. So this experience actually encouraged. Uh, I think it encouraged several adults to think of reviving many of the dying aspects of Babanki culture. Um, I also work with an endangered register in my research. I'm looking at the honorific register, which now people just use Japanese, which is the the majority language. I, I think I had similar problems to you. It's very difficult to find natural situations 
where they're going to use them. So um, I, I did all kinds of things. I tried to get like different aged people together and or like create like a service encounter. Um, yeah, so I also had some like staged staged sessions because it was like it was very difficult to find the like naturally spontaneous speech. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes one has to do that, you know, to cover some gaps. Yeah. Well, thank you, Pius, so much for coming on to Field Notes. Where can our listeners learn more about the work that you're doing? I have I have my personal website. Uh, yeah, with uh, information about my work that even includes links to most of my publications. Uh-huh. We'll link that. Someone might also take a look at LinkedIn profile. Oh, your LinkedIn? Yeah. Great. Yeah, and I'll include both those in the show notes. All right. Uh, oh, well, this was really this was really nice. Thank you, Pius. It's my pleasure, Marty. You you are doing a great job. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple podcast review. Thanks for listening.